Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. On these gigs, you know, we're playing to between 70,000 and 100,000 people a night. So that's, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline that's coursing yeah. around. So you'll rarely just go home and go, well, I'm going to bed. Night. <laughs> Welcome back. Mark Pusey is the rock star you've definitely heard, but maybe never heard of. He's the drummer for superstars like Elton John and Ed Sheeran. But when he's not on tour and collaborating with some of the world's greatest ever artists, he's the guy pulling people out of the Thames with the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, or otherwise known as the RNLI. Before we get started in the episode, AG1 is supporting us again this week and helping me to continue to make this content. I've been taking AG1 for well over a year now because it's super convenient. AG1 replaces your multivitamin or probiotic in one simple drinkable habit. Why take a bunch of things when you just mix one scoop of powder and water just once a day? And if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com dot com forward slash Andy Rowe. By doing so, you'll be supporting this podcast as well. And we had our first live show last week. Thank you so much if you managed to come along. It was a massive success. And if you want to come to next week's show, I've put the link to all the upcoming live shows in the description to this episode. Next week's at the Eagle in Ladbrook Grove in London with former Red Arrow and Top Gun pilot Dan Lowe's and war hero Liz McConaughey. That's on Wednesday, the 26th of July, and we have some great stories and lots of whiskey. The following show is with rogue warrior Denny Denham and the prison governor Vanessa Frake. As I said, I'll put the link in the description to this episode, so you can just scroll down, click the link, and buy your ticket. They're only 15 quid, and you get a free Buffalo Trace cocktail with that and some delicious nibbles. Hope you enjoy the episode. Mark Pawsey, thanks for coming on the show, mate. You're very, very welcome. Where are you at the moment? Um, I am in uh, Pittsburgh. Sorry, we've, we just traveled. We've had a bit of a travel day. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're now in Pittsburgh um, in Pennsylvania in the United States. Does it get like that where you're on a tour bus or what, what happens? You just wake up and you're like, well, where am I? And someone asks you and you're like, oh, actually, good question. Yeah. So I've been I've been. Um, in order to break the tour up a little bit, because we're out here um, with Ed for five months, I've booked, like, my family are coming out and uh, girlfriends coming out and all that sort of stuff. And uh, when my family are coming out, we've booked a little trip to... Um, that's room service. Oh, I'm, I'm all right, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so we're about we're out here for about five months and um, the plan is I'm... I'm I've got uh, I've got my girlfriend's coming out a couple of times and um, my folks are coming out and they, they're going on a bit of a road trip and they're going to swing by some of the dates and we're going to we're going to join I'm going to join the road trip for a few days and uh, just go and ex- do some exploring and stuff and um, we've been booking Airbnbs for places in Detroit 
And so when people have been asking me, I've been like, oh, we're in Detroit. No, hang on a minute. I'm thinking about Detroit, but we're actually in Boston or, or Pennsylvania or wherever else we are. And you know what, with the travel and all the rest of it, occasionally it's the inside of one hotel room sometimes looks like the inside of another. So, <laughs> you know, unless you're looking out and it's, oh, look out the window, there's a CN Tower. Okay, we must be in Toronto or whatever, you know. <laughs> it, some, of it, some of it tends to tends to blend. Just for someone listening to this that might not have picked up, you're on tour with Ed Sheeran at the moment. Yeah, playing drums for his uh, mathematics tour. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, it's a it's a long old tour that uh, in promotion of his uh, of his last album or the, the most recent album, Subtract, and it's sort of the greatest hits of all the other other albums in the mathematics series. So plus, divide, multiply, equals, and and now lately, subtract. Is he as good as a lad? as good as a human as people make out like is he is he as good at egg as we all think he is he is probably better like i'm not just saying this because he employs me and he's <laughs> he's a friend but, but seriously i mean I'd, I'd deftfully avoid the question if he wasn't but he really is such a great guy like on days off he'll go into schools and give them a bunch of guitars and play for the kids you know, and uh, the kids will have a school band and he'll just show up unannounced and be like, oh, you know, I hear you play this song. You want to you want to jam it? And it doesn't get paid for that. And, you know, very often it, it won't hit the news. But occasionally it does because the school will be like, oh, my God, we need to let the local press know. And then it goes a bit viral or whatever else. But he's doing that all the time and going and, and doing charity stuff and just under the radar doing really great stuff for people. And it's just a really good egg. It's it's it's. He's so lovely, and he's he's obviously incredibly good at music as well. He's a pretty decent songwriter, and yeah, he's a, he's a really good human. He, he really is. So it's it's nice to be able to tell people that what they think. I think after a while, you know, if you're in the public eye, and you're not actually a nice person, it, I think eventually the mask slips, or people mm. and figure out that you're maybe not. Maybe there's something else going on, but he—he, he, I don't think you can come across as nice as he does and not be. And and I'm happy to report that he is genuinely brilliant and lovely and thoughtful and really, really good egg. How did you come about? I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get your backstory how you got into drums and stuff. But how did, how did you come about doing the drums as a sessions drummer, freelance drummer for for Ed Sheeran? Because that's a big gig. Yeah, I mean, um, so I've done, I've been doing it as a job for about 20 odd years now, um, just over 20 years as a, as a sort of full time employment. Um, so you don't start off with the biggest gig in the world, you work your way up, you do weddings, bar mitzvahs, jazz gigs, funerals, anything, literally anything that will, will, will pay. Um, and moreover, when it's your hobby as well, you just enjoy doing them having done it for 21 years or 20, 21 years, you start doing all sorts of stuff and then somebody will go, oh, you're great. Actually, we, you know, I'm working with an artist and um, your playing would really suit them or you should come audition. And then you do that and you meet people on that gig, a music director, for example, or a piano player or a, or a bass player or something. And when that gig finishes, they go on and go, oh, there's this new girl who's just got this album out on Sony and they're looking for a band. I'll recommend you. And then somebody will go, Okay, yeah, I know, I know him. I've seen him. He's great. Yeah, okay, we'll hire him. Fine. And then that will finish or somebody else will go, oh, I've seen you on this gig and I really like the way you play or your vibe or whatever. Can you come do my gig? And so really it's it's just that 
It's word of mouth, really. Nobody puts an ad in the Telegraph or, or in the free ads or anything like that saying, drummer wanted, please hire me. It's really based on personal recommendation. I mean, say you're looking to, to get some shelves built or something. So you, you Google a carpenter, you'll look at the reviews. Mm. And there's 110 people have reviewed them and 109 have said, this guy's great. Then you'll probably go with that guy. It's the same in our industry, although because it's smaller, it's, it's word of mouth. And it's, um, it, that, that's really it. I mean, if you're, if you're good and you're not a pain in the backside, because this, this touring malarkey is pretty intense. Mm. You know, we, we play, so we did a, an hour and a half show on Saturday night, um, and the next gig we've got is on Friday. So that's, what, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's five days, 24 hours, you're, or, or, or for the, all the waking day, you're next to people, you're with people, and you're, you're having to get along with people. You can't be Maybe, a dickhead. Yeah, maybe people that aren't your vibe or not your crowd or your people or, you know, people from all different walks of life, people with different political ideas, people with different musical ideas, people that you wouldn't necessarily choose to hang out with at a pub, but who you work with. Sometimes you get super lucky and it's like, well, my best friends are on this gig and you, it's just a ridiculous holiday, basically. But other times, you know, you have to, you, you've got to fit in and not be a complete tool. You know, if you're really good at that one and a half hour show but then for the other 22 and a half hours of that day oh my god it's freezing in here the air conditioning's on or why is there cucumber in these sandwiches and you know why is the dressing room not got wi-fi you know nobody will want to be with you are there so you people can... like that that it's happened to in bands that you've been in where they've been annoying like that and they just got yeah yeah very very i mean if you if you want to do a good if you want to make it a career you very quickly learn to cut that stuff out because you know not now but certainly towards the beginning of people's careers or you know people who are a bit younger or a bit greener they don't know that stuff they don't know that etiquette in fact when i was one of my very first gigs like pop gigs of of note with 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 an artist um, i replaced another drummer on it this drummer was about 10 years older than I was. And I used to, before, when I was under 18, I used to sneak into jazz clubs to watch him play. Really killer player. And then I got a call from a mate who was uh, doing this gig and I bumped into him and, and sort of gone to jam nights that he was at. And we, we got along really well. And he was like, oh, I might give you a call about something. I was like, well, he's doing this gig. I know he's doing that gig. I wonder what he's going to give me a call about. Sure enough, the next morning he gives me a call. And he's like, can you can you come and audition? Just meet the artist and just make sure that you guys are a good fit. Um, I'm like, yeah, but hang on a minute. You've got this drummer playing for you, who's one of my favorite drummers. I used to sneak into clubs to watch him play. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't need to talk about that just now. Just just come down and check out the gig. And so I was like, right, I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm going to go down. I ended up really getting along with the artist. And they really liked the way I played. It was a good fit. And I ended up doing the gig. And, and, and they, I, I replaced this guy who was one of my favorite drummers. And after about three gigs, we were on a bus and I was just like, I'm really sorry. I've got the elephant in the room. I've just got to ask. Oh, Tell me ask. if I need to. Like, that guy you got rid of is so good. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm not nearly as good, as, or 21 years old. I'm not nearly as good as that guy. Like, why? Because he's so good. What? Yeah, he's great. And for that hour and a half on stage, he was great. But again, for the other 22 and a half hours a day, it's like, well, why, why is the lobby call at 8 a.m.? That's ridiculous. We don't need to be there till 10. And why are we going on a bus? Why are we not flying? And why? We... And man, it was just too much. So the guy was fantastic. He was great. But he didn't last in that job because of all the other stuff that comes with it. It has to be a given that to do a job 
in this capacity, you have to be very good, very accomplished, um, at least good enough to, to be able to do it. The other stuff is what makes you get called back. Yeah. The other stuff, the art lies in the detail. If you were, again, if you were a, a, a great carpenter, but, you know, and you went around to build some shelves in somebody's house and you did a great job and it looked like, you know, you painted a wall and it was like the Sistine Chapel and it was amazing. But you were like, where's my bloody tea? And, you know, like, are you not going to give us some food? Or, or you know, or they you traipsed mud through the house or you complained about just, oh, it smells in this house, doesn't it? Yeah. You could be the best carpenter in the world, but guaranteed you're not going back to that house for another job. There must be a lot of really, really good musicians that are just going to be solo artists no matter I've, what. Yeah, I've, I've recommended some great players and then got a call from the person I recommended them to the next day. I was like, oh, how, how did the gig go? Did, uh, did such and such do a good job? Yeah, it's really good on stage, but man, it was a pain in the ass. Turned up late, didn't have the right gear. The gig sounded good, but it was stressful. And uh, then you're like, oh, okay, all right. So you don't want to be one of those people. So the first time you played with Ed Sheeran, I think was it when, it may not have been the first time, but there was a story about you playing on national radio with Ed. And he's quite fly by the seat of his pants, right? Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, good homework. Well done. So, so yeah, we, we, um, we'd been uh, a friend of mine, a mutual friend, uh, Chris, who's a guitarist and a songwriter, great guitarist, um, was sort of jamming with Ed, had heard of Ed, was working in circles that, that Ed was around in and said, check out this guy. And um, we, we all went to the pub together and we ended up, you know, singing out a lot of Westlife tunes and stuff and having a bit of a lock-in and just playing and getting on really well. And, you know, I had like a salt and pepper grinder and was using it as a shaker and banging on the table like a set of drums. And we were just all playing. And then we'd go back to a flat and, you know, end up jamming and playing and listening, listening to music sort of through the night. And then all of a sudden he got signed. That guy got signed. And I'd, I'd been seeing, I'd, I'd seen Ed a bunch of times just when he got signed. I was playing with um, Ollie Murs. We would do like Jingle Bell Balls and we'd be, because Ollie was big at the time, we'd be headlining or, or, or the Girl Guides Jamboree at Wembley Arena. Right. So... We'd, we'd all be on this gigs and there'd be loads of different artists and I'd be playing with one or two of them and I'd keep bumping into Ed at these gigs and he'd be at the side of the stage watching us. Oh man, it's cool. I like the way you play the drums and you know, then we'd be like, oh, do you remember that night we had when we were singing Westlife covers and all that sort of stuff. So we kept seeing each other and he kept seeing me with other artists and all the rest of it. So Ed was with you during that night where you were with the Salt and Pepper Shakers singing Westlife? Yeah. Yeah, so so we were, he was just singing out Westlife covers, and we were all yeah. just mucking around, going like, "Oh, do you remember like that Backstreet Boys song?" And we'd sort of jam it out and play, it and then all sing harmonies and just be stupid and goof off and that sort of stuff. And and then later on, he kept seeing me on these gigs because he got signed. He was put on these gigs, and I'd be playing on these gigs as well. And he'd be at the side of the stage, waiting to come on and watching us play. And I keep seeing you around, like, "How you doing, man?" And it's all cool, and it's you know great. And then he ended up doing a live lounge which he needed at a BBC Radio 1 Live Lounge, which he needed a band for. And um, uh, we did a, a, a tiny little rehearsal and kind of got the song together and then went down to Maida Vale, MV4, I think it was, Maida Vale 4, to do the song. The red light comes on and all of a sudden you you speak to the studio. And it's like, oh, hey, it's Fern Cotton here, you know. Ed, you're going to play a song from your new album. It's um, You're going to play, uh, I think it was Drunk. No, 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 you're going to play something else and... Um, and a cover. And of course, we'd done the cover. It was Empire State of Mind. You have to do one cover and you have to do a song of your own. 
So it was the Alicia Keys. Um, Ooh, uh, good song. And, yeah. So we, <laughs> we ended up doing that. And she was like, oh, you're gonna, we're going to come back and you're going to do one of your own songs, aren't you? You're going to do um, Drunk. And he was like, well, I wasn't planning on I was going to do this song. And she was like, oh, I like Drunk. And he goes, okay, no problem, we'll play it. And then <laughs> and she goes, great, well we'll, well, we'll come back after this song. She plays a song, the red light goes off, and we all look at each other going, we don't know that song. The album's just come out, we don't know that song yet. And it's like, oh, it's fine, just you'll pick it up. And we sort of just strum the chords. So John on bass was like, okay, I know what key it's in. I kind of know the progressions now. We'll we'll figure this out. And I was like, okay, so how does the beat go? And he sort of beatboxed it to me and said, oh, this is how it goes. Two minutes, 20 seconds later, the red light comes on. Oh, we're back in the studio with Ed Sheeran and uh, you're going to play drunk. And it's like, yeah, here we go. And we just play it. And we just, you know, we, we played the song that we weren't, you know, supposed to and we didn't know. Um, so yeah, he's got a, got a habit of, and because he is so good, he'll just go, oh, well, we can do this and it'll be fine. And it how, usually is. How did you go though? Like you just learnt the song in two and a half minutes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and lots of lots of head nodding, sort of. Um, yeah, it's when you. It's kind of like when you speak a language. You know, it's like music is a language, if you like. And when you speak that language, you anticipate how sentences are constructed. It would be a non sequitur. Like I'm holding up a bottle of water. I'll go. This is a bottle of water. The bottle of water is green. Okay, I, I know which words I'm going to say because it's descriptive and I know enough about the language to know that when describing something, you'll use colors and you'll use weight or descriptors of, of an item, for example. And it's kind of the same in music. When you know it well enough, you know how things are going to go. You need to you, you know what people need to hear. You need you, you know once you know a tempo and you know a rough structure, okay, it goes verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Choruses are usually louder, so you'll play slightly differently. And there's lots of head nods and sort of mouthing over the, you know, in silent over the over the studio. Coming up to the chorus, two, three, four. So you know that you need to build to go into that chorus and such. So it's it's kind of like when you've been doing it long enough, you you can kind of fill in the gaps to get away with it. I mean, ideally, you would rehearse it and you'd know the song coming in. And, Ideally, and it, yeah. It'd be less pressure. But there are plenty of things you get, you're get you able to get away with because you can sort of speak the language, if you like. But it's wildly, wildly stressful. Wasn't there a time when you were on stage, it might not have been your problem or it might have been something else went wrong? So there, there have been, you know, it's it's a very, very, very complex operation of um, if you've ever seen pictures of this mathematics tour, if you haven't, I'd recommend Googling it. Just Ed's stage on this mathematics tour. It's mad. So the state, it's all in the round. So we're in the middle of these stadiums. Ed's on a stage in the middle and that stage goes round and it goes up and down so all the audience can see him. And above that, there's a massive halo. There's lots of moving parts and that halo is lifted up and down by these on these lines which come off these huge struts and each band member is on one of those struts looking in at the stage so it's a really complex loads of moving parts plenty of stuff can go wrong but on one night i think it was the opening night at wembley the halo didn't go up because one of the motors broke or something happened that was out of everyone's control um my electronics that i use on the drums so You've got drum sounds on albums, but occasionally you'll have special effects and like sub drops or like do 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 or bing or whatever, and you need electronic pads to make them work. My pads went down, that the electronics failed, um, a, a cymbal stand broke and a cymbal fell off the drum kit. I broke a stick in the middle of the first song, and this all happened within two minutes. And 
it's a, and so that two minutes to all of us felt like the longest two minutes in the world. It was like, okay, I mean, I feel like what's going to happen next? The drums are going to catch fire and flip over and fall into the sea or something ridiculous is going to happen. What could possibly more go wrong? Oh, no, it was in Melbourne, actually. It was in Melbourne. My girlfriend came to that show and was like, I came off stage, like, oh, God, can you believe what happened in the first song? She was like, oh, I didn't know this. I've seen the show before and it was great. And it was, okay, so nobody noticed anything went wrong. No. And that's, again, because everybody's so good at their job that, okay, so I, I've talked about it before. It's um, headroom. You want to be so good at something mm. that when something throws a problem in, it's kind of like, imagine a computer using its CPU up to do something really, well, playing a song for me because I've been doing it so long. Use about 5-10% of your CPU, of your ability, so that when something happens, you drop a stick, a cymbal falls off a stand, the electronics go down, the halo doesn't go up. Okay, well, that's bumping the CPU up to 20%, but I've still got 80% of headroom. So if stuff goes wrong, you've still got the, the mental and, and, and physical capacity to be able to play and get through it without it looking like a complete train wreck. Can you talk me through a day where, let's say, you're playing at Wembley? Well, we're, we're both West Londoners, so Wembley isn't too far from us. We're not too far away from one another. We're in Chiswick. Yeah, and, uh, and it varies depending on, on days. So Wembley, I'd be at home, for example. So I'd be at home the night before, get up, have some breakfast, go to the gym, and then you'll tend to go to a venue for a sound check. When you're on a tour, the sound check's super important, especially, so at the moment, all, all the gigs we've been doing with Ed on this mathematics tour, so for the last 18 months uh, and continuing, through um are all stadiums and stadiums aren't necessarily built for sound in fact they're definitely not they're usually sports arenas or, or sort of you know for different events that aren't music so the sound will be entirely different so for the front of house for the people that mix the sound as you hear it for the monitor engineers people that mix the sound as we hear it in our ears and for everything in between it's different from venue to venue so you'll have to sound check you'll have to sit there because my drums might in Wembley Stadium might echo a lot. In the MCG in Melbourne, when we did the Melbourne Cricket Ground, they didn't because it's big and it's wide and it's open and they're not bouncing off of surfaces. So in order to adjust to that sound, in order for them to calibrate the sound uh, as it needs to be in that particular venue, you'll go and do a sound check where you'll run a few songs, you might have some, there might be some new ideas or something in the last gig might not have worked or might have worked really well. Somebody might have done something a bit fancy and everybody looks around and goes, wow, that's great. So can you do that again? Can you make sure you do that in every gig? So you'll rehearse that stuff. You'll just get comfortable on your instrument and then you'll finish that. You'll go to catering, you'll have something to eat, you'll hang out, you'll listen to some music, you'll talk about the show, talk about life. And this is what I mean. This is the downtime in which that, that's important for you to be a team player where you're just sat in the dressing room, chewing the card and shooting the breeze and talking about, you know, life. And then you'll get ready, you'll psych yourself up. You might I might do some warm-ups on a pad to make sure that my hands and my feet are feeling warmed up and, and free and uninhibited. And then you'll go out and you'll do the show. And then... You may or may not have a drink after the show or hang out, decompress. You know, it's, it's a pretty, on these gigs, you know, we're playing to between 70,000 and 100,000 people a night. So that's, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline that's coursing yeah. around. So you'll rarely just go home and go, well, I'm going to bed, night, <laughs> you know. Um, How do you wind just, down? Um... You, you, you talk, with you know, you, you just hang out, sure. you, chat, you might have a beer, you just chill, you talk about how the show went. 
Or it might have gotten to the stage where I think we're on, I, I can't even remember what gig we're on, but we've been doing it for 18 months. It might get to the stage where like, yeah, it's a good gig tonight. Oh, did you see that uh, See that couple down in the front when we played Thinking Out Loud? The guy got on one knee, they proposed. Oh, yeah, there's a guy at the top as well who proposed. The spotlight went up there. That must have been what was going on. Or, or you know, the traffic might be bad. So you'll just be like, oh, God, the traffic coming out of this. I wonder what time these people are going to get home. You know, anything really. But the excitement, the adrenaline's still there. If it wasn't, you'd be some sort of sociopath or psychopath. Do you have a... I guess there's lots of other celebrities come into the changing rooms after... Well, changing rooms, the green room, whatever, whatever yeah. it is, afterwards. Is that, is that the case? Any big dogs come in there and kind of go, oh, and, and what do you do in the band? Yeah, yeah. All the, all, I mean, all the time. If you're a celebrity, then that begats celebrity. You know, it, it, there, are, there are people who you know who are quite... Co- and some of them, you know... There are movie stars in there who I'm like, oh look, it's go on, drop some names, drop some. Well, names. I don't know, but like, but 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 even guests that come in. So like, we've last week we had, um, I got an opportunity. We we all got an opportunity to play with John Mayer, who's one of my favourite guitarists of all time and a really great guy. And I I sort of was a that was my college was playing along to his album. You know, like it was to, to Room for Squares when that came out, and then to to Heavier Things when that came out. I loved those albums and I love his playing, and. And, and then, you know, before you know it, you get a chance to play with John Mayer and hang out with him. And I'm getting messages from, I had like uh, 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 30, 30 something messages from guitar mates saying, oh my God, you've got to play with John Mayer. You know, like what strap was he using? And, you know, like is it, how big are his hands? And all this stuff. <laughs> you know? And, and so, so some of them like that, I'm like, oh my God, you know, it, I, I really like to talk to John Mayer and have a chat because we've got a lot in common. It's certainly music at the very least. And, um, He's he's damn interesting, and I I really like what he does, and I love what he brings to the table. And then a movie star will come in, and it will be like, oh, okay, he was in that film. Okay, cool. Well, that's all right. I haven't seen that film, or I have, and it was good, but I'm not going to bother him because I don't. He doesn't need to know about you know this or that, and I need nor do I. So I'd let him have his space. But yeah, there are certain people who are like, oh my god, amazing. I I just you know how are you doing? And you just want to chat with them. And then there are certain people who are like, oh, cool. Well, they're here. Oh, nice. Okay, great. Or, or oh, they're taller in real life. Or, oh, look at his hair. He's dyed it. Oh, he must be doing a different movie role or he's lost weight or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And yeah. And nobody's there to see Mark Pusey play drums. I mean, somebody might be somebody, you know, somebody, I guess. Hey, don't put yourself down like that. Yeah. Well, my mum oh. and dad, my mum and dad or my girlfriend or yeah, some mates. Your girlfriend was there. Yeah. If they're on a guest list, they'll be like, Oh, look, Mark Busey's here. But nobody's, you know, <laughs> I'm well aware of my place in the world. But, you know, a movie star will come. Like in Australia, I think Chris Chris Hemsworth or Liam Hemsworth. See, this is why I didn't check the name because I wasn't sure which one it was. I was like, they, they, they'll come to the gig and they're brilliant and hilarious and massive. Or like, you'll be, oh, my God, that's Thor. How cool, that's Thor. Yeah. But, you know, just leave him to it. He doesn't want to doesn't want to know about Mark Busey's day. <laughs> he doesn't, you know. <laughs> to worry about. He just wants to get a selfie with Ed. There you go, there you go. Where do you think Ed Sheeran will rank alongside, because, I mean, these are big names, but Elton and the Beatles are, you know, two, two biggies, two real biggies. Where do you think Ed Sheeran's going to rank alongside those guys long term? That's a really good question. And, it, and I suppose it's, if you're looking at music as a competition, not a competition, but recently Rolling Stone magazine did an article on, I think, the fifth, 50 best singers of 100 best singers. And I don't know a single person, musician or not, that was happy with that list. Aretha Franklin was in the top. Beyonce was in the top. 
it depends on your how you're grading them. I mean, my favorite vocalist is Randy Newman. Uh, you know, like, you got a friend in me. You put Randy against Andrea Bocelli or somebody who's classically trained and has a beautiful operatic voice, and it'd be like, well, it's over. There's no competition at all. But when you're looking for storytelling in, in music, there's nobody beats Randy Newman, really, in terms of his writing. When Randy Newman sings that his heart's broken, he's not singing it like Andrea Bocelli because it's pretty and it's beautiful. He's singing it, and there's a certain pathos to the fact that his voice isn't beautiful. It's sad. It's really sad. Oh my God, he's not singing this because it's pretty. He's singing this because it's really going through it. And listen to the emotion in his voice. It's not a pretty voice, but listen to the emotion in it. It's great. And it takes you to a place. So given that music can't be ranked because there are different merits in everything, it's difficult putting like, is Ed going to be as influential as the Beatles? No, probably not. But yes, to a generation, the amount of people that come up to, to me at shows or because we walk through the crowd and um, or before shows and goes, can you tell Ed I'm playing guitar because of him? Or you're outside a venue and you're walking into the venue. Can you tell Ed his music saved my life? And can you tell Ed that I'm, I'm, I'm doing my first gig next week and it's playing his songs because I learned him? So although the Beatles in history and culturally can never be matched because... There, there was a zeitgeist that, that they hit the thing at the time where that's what the world needed. And they were so good. So, so, so good. That can never really happen again. But given that it's happened and music is evolving and changing all the time, different generations see different merit in different artists. So the Beatles, people in the children of the 60s and the 70s, that was the thing. And that continues to be the thing. Children of the 90s, like me, well, I'm, I was born in the 80s, but I was started buying music in the 90s. Me and all my friends, we were buying Radiohead and Oasis and Blur and those albums, Manic Street Preachers, and playing along to them. So for me, they are as important as the Beatles. In history terms, probably not. But for a whole generation, they are. And for a new generation, Ed Sheeran, Lewis Capaldi, Taylor Swift, you know, people might balk at whether they like that music or not, but there are kids going to those gigs going in the same way that I did, looking up at the stage and going, Mum, I want to do that. That's cool. I want to be in music and I want to do that because of these people. And certainly in terms of the, the musical canon of success, it's undeniable whether you like artists or hate artists. In terms of success terms and sales and radio play and having written songs that are going to be played at weddings and funerals for the rest of time. Ed is way up there. You know, is he as big as the Beatles culturally? Well, no, because at the time it was a perfect storm that made them be as big as they are, alongside the talent, obviously. But I know people who've played visiting hours at their funeral and people who've got married to thinking out loud or perfect. In terms of will he be recognised in 100 years? I think absolutely so. Certainly by a generation now, but just in terms of talent and in terms of, of having those songs that we were talking about earlier, those songs that affect people's lives and going, oh my God, he's, he's saying in three minutes, 30 seconds, exactly what this process of bereavement's been like. Or, oh my God, do you know when he says that the way she dances and her hair catches in the light, that's, that's my girlfriend, that's me and her. You know, he's got a great way of articulating what people are thinking. And for that, you know, he's definitely in that canon. You mentioned Lewis Capaldi, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but did you watch him? I'm guessing you might you might have met him before. 
And yeah. 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 But did Very you watch good. him at Glastow? And obviously, he's a, he's such a favourite of a. He he comes across as another great human. I think, I think, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that can be an act. I don't think you can put that on and sell yourself as somebody who's down to earth and still likes a Greg's pasty and a McDonald's and all that stuff that he says he likes and and fake it. You know, he, he really does seem genuine. I don't know him, but he seems, I've met him very briefly, but he seems genuinely like another good guy. And um, he's wildly talented and a great, great songwriter and fantastic artist and very relatable um, and a great singer, great songwriter. And I'm, I, I hope he's cool. I hope he's, I hope he, uh, I hope he gets the space he needs. And I'm, you know, I hope he, he just feels a bit better because uh, that, that class to me was really super sad. And yeah. I don't know anything about Lewis or his personal life. I know some of the guys in his band who are brilliant. I just want the best for him. So I hope that he can, I hope that he feels better and I hope that he can, if, if space is what he needs to take some time out, then that's wicked. Take the pressure off, take some time off. If he decides that he can come back, that's wicked. If he decides he doesn't, then that's the right thing for him. But I think he's brilliant. I really do. I think he's great. Yeah, he's amazing, eh? Yeah. You, um, you've worked with Elton John as well, haven't you? Yeah. Like, the first, <laughs> talk, me, talk me through that. Like, the first time you meet Elton John... You know you're going to be. I'm assuming you probably know that you're going to be meeting Elton John. Yeah, you must it was be absolutely bricking it. Yeah, and and Elton for me is the same. So when when you're growing up, growing up. So when I was buying music, as I said, it would be it was around the time of like Oasis and Radiohead and all that sort of stuff in the '90s. Britpop really was was big when I was when I was sort of just started buying music. But before that, before you're able to buy music, before you've got any sort of budget to be able to do that, when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, maybe, you're really listening to what's on in the house, mm. which is a combination of either Radio 2 or your parents' music collection. And my parents, my mum especially, is a huge Elton fan. Who's so, it, it, Exactly, yeah. So, so it was on in the house from being a kid, and I loved it. I think he is such an exceptional musician. And Bernie Tolpin, in terms of lyrics and, and, and the two of them working together, are absolutely sensational and i think he's written some of the best songs well you know all that you saw are those people at glastonbury and you've seen the for all about his final final ever tour um so i'm not alone i, I think he's utterly brilliant and you know you get you do get these pinch me moments where you'll get a call for a session or something and it will be an artist that you grew up listening oh my god and you'll ring like tom jones i'll ring my dad who likes tom jones and be like dad i'm doing a tour with Don, doing these gigs and these recordings or whatever with with this and it will be something from your child and Elton was no exception so you get you get a call to do that and you're like oh my god so cool and then you you, you know you, you might get a chance to say hello or meet them or then work with them and jam with them and um yeah and 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 he was funny sharp like erudite really witty great storyteller biting but in a hilarious way really 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 good songwriter and 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 fantastic and all these other things as well you know when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you're sort of there. Wow, this is amazing. Did he? Did can you talk me through your interaction with him or what? How it was um, they've they've been you know so in in studio jobs it's been very it's sort of been very brief. You're there to do a job, but you know you'll all go back and you'll listen in together and and there'll be feedback and it's lovely and he's very generous with his praise when he likes something and knows when he doesn't. It's just super just super cool and very funny. I mean a lot of the sort of actual conversation i'd be wary of saying you know just get your podcast taken off the air but he's uh he's very very sharp very very witty and quick he talks to me about um his songwriting because obviously he's got a songwriter that did most of his songs i, I mean i'm hugely ignorant it's on hard. this but yeah so, so how, how does that work yeah so for for a big part of his career um in fact, for the most part of his career, he uh, writes with a chap called Bernie Tolpin. And Bernie is a, a poet, really. I mean, a, an absolute... The, the song Sacrifice, whether you like the song or not, if you listen to the lyrics, they are absolutely fantastic about the, the splitting in a relationship. And uh, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And the music as well accompanies that. So it's... Um, have you ever watched a horror movie without the, without the sound on? The sound to that movie is is as important as the visuals you're seeing because it builds tension and it's and it seems that the same is true in their relationship so elton will write the music the melody will top line so to speak and that means he will come so it's a g or a d g whatever that's how the progression of the chords will go and then you need to think of how the melody goes over the top of it so not just the chords but it's a human sign when things go wrong so that's a top line. That's the line that sits on the top that's in that key that will... So he'll write that, but the lyrics will have been Bernie. And the way they work together, it's not just a case of, right, write something to this, but they'll write collaboratively. That's obviously happened, but they'll write collaboratively and come up collectively with the most amazing stuff. What about, what about your involvement when, when you are working with Elton? Are you at all collaborating on any of his songs or are you purely staying the hell in your lane because it's Elton John. Well, you, you do, you do, but you, you've also got to realise that, so really it's through the producer and the producer on those sessions was a chap called Giles Martin and Giles Martin is one of, one of the best, absolutely one of the best, for sure. His dad was George Martin who was the Beatles producer. Oh, really? But the producer, nice. yeah, but, but, uh, and Giles in his own right, far away from what his, the great stuff his dad did is staggeringly good. And, and really, really is fantastic. A producer on a session is kind of like a puppet master. So the artist will have, will of course, miss the artist's gig, right? So they will either be very, uh, have a lot of input, be, you know, very thoughtful and, and, and descriptive in what they want, or they'll be very hands-off and be like, I've written this song, I've hired you guys because 
I don't know how to play the drums, but you do. You know what will sound good in your experience to this song. So play it. If I don't like it, we can revise it or I can say what I don't like about it. But really, I've hired you because I want you to make this song sound good. But we were trying to figure out ways to make this song sound good that we that we had for his for his uh, for his album. And um, it was OK. So we'll try this idea. I think this will sound good. And then the producer will come in and say, well, do you know what? We're actually going to put some trumpets over the top of this. They're not here right now, but my plan is that Elton wants to put trumpets on the top of this. And I know that what you're playing will get in the way of what they're playing. So let's strip that bit out and play it differently. So we'll go for a different idea. And then that might work. And then the bass player will go, well, okay, hang on. If you're playing that, I'll lock in with that and do something else. And then the guitarist might go, okay, there's a space here, so I'll take a solo. Or So it's like, and then the producer and the artist are usually in the control room overseeing all this like a puppet master and guiding you in it and every session is completely different sometimes an artist not Elton but I, I've been in sessions with artists where they'll go I want this to go do da do do da do do da do do da do and I want the fill to go da da do 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 and you'll go okay and you'll sit there and you'll play it and they'll go thanks that's exactly what I want and then you'll go into a different session with a different artist that will go I want some drums on this and you'll go, okay, well, what are you looking for? Um, like, I don't know, like, the song feels a bit yellow. I talk a lot about emotional intelligence, and, it, and it's true. You just need some emotional intelligence. So what does yellow mean, right? So yellow is bright. It's happy. It's sparkly. It's nice, right? It's not terracotta or muddy brown. So armed with those three, three descriptors, so it needs to be bright. Okay, so no big tom fills. So you might play with brushes or something light. And you might just play on the cymbals because it needs to be sparkly. And it needs to be bright and colourful and yellow. Nothing too um, low end and nothing too like beating you into the ground with it. They want something floaty and sort of, you know, not doom, 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 doom. So if you have the emotional intelligence to, to take what somebody says, a descriptor, that somebody might not have thought too much. I, I mean, do you speak drums? Probably not. The, the public don't speak drums. And even songwriters will write something beautiful and be in a headspace when they write it. And they'll say, uh, and so you'll say, well, what's this song about? And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, there was, um, there was a breakup, a uh, really horrible breakup I was going through, but then... Um, that led to me finding the love of my life. And then you go, okay, so now you're a bit more informed about the place they were in when they wrote it and the sort of soundscape you need to create in order for them to get what they want out of that song. So while they might not speak drums in particular, they'll give you adjectives and they'll give you descriptors to say, this is how I was feeling when I wrote it and this is what I want the mood to be. Or somebody might go, oh yeah, this song's, uh, I want this song to be, it's, this song's dark, this song's dark, man. And you'll be like, okay, well, you probably don't want those sparkly symbols. You'll probably want some Tom stuff. You'll probably want some intensity to the playing, some dynamic. You want it to be brooding and... Something like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And the producer... It's a really good is, way of explaining it. Well, the producer is, is the guy who will be the puppet master in the session. If the artist can, that's great, and they have very particular ideas, that's fantastic, and you'll deliver them for the artist. If they don't, it's you and the producer coming up with ways to try to bring to the surface what 
the artist would play if they were able to play drums. It's so interesting. It's a whole new world that I never even knew existed. Yeah, it's it's bizarre and creative. But again, it's it's being it's having emotional intelligence. Turning what you have now turned into a job is a pretty ambitious thing to want to do when you're a kid and it's almost something that it, because it's not a natural necessarily career path at, at what option um at, at what stage did you realize that this was an option or was it the only option are you one of those people that was like oh i've only ever wanted to do this so that's that's what i that's what i did because that's it or did you have other options and this kind of just kind of rose to the top gradually or how did it come about because if i had a kid and they were like i want to be a drummer i'd be like yeah cool you can be a drummer but you you bloody going to school you, you're gonna you're gonna study you're gonna do all that yeah. and, and and make sure you have options like how, what was your process that's a great question there's a, there's a bunch of stuff to unpack in that i mean when people say oh you're lucky you get to do what you want for a living i'm like I spent eight hours a day on my own in practice rooms for years and I worked so hard to be good enough to be at a standard where you're doing this stuff, mm. you know, stuff on a global scale, on a global stage with artists that are as big as Ed and Elton and Andrea Bocelli and all, all these people. The luck comes into it, I think, in that it's all I wanted to do. The luck was, the lucky bit was I didn't have an option. The lucky bit was I was driven because I was obsessed. And, I, and, the, and the lucky bit was the fact that I was obsessed. I didn't manifest that. I didn't create that. And because of that, there wasn't really too much else I wanted to do. So I focused my time and I spent my time developing it and getting better at it just by accident. I wasn't sat in a room going, I want to be really good. I want to be really good. I want to be really good. It was just I play a lot. And the more you do it, the better you get. And that's simply it. The 10,000 hour, the Michael, my, uh, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour rule. You do anything for 10 hours, uh, 10,000 hours, and you'll become an expert at it effectively. And that 10,000 hours was a breeze for me because it wasn't hard work. It was just an obsession. In terms of career path, um, growing up, I had lots of fantastic help from people I consider mentors, my favorite drummers in, in the United Kingdom who were like, oh man, you know, you're good and you could totally do this. There's not much of a scene like there used to be, but somebody needs to do it. And, you know, you're well, well, predisposed to, to be able to do it so you should totally go for it and I was a little bit like I was the one going oh maybe I should maybe I should go to uni and get a get a degree just in case something to fall back on and all the rest of it and I went to uni I was going to study law I was I wanted to be a, a litigator I thought that was a far a better career path and good money and all the rest of it I loved law and I still do I'm an enthusiast and and I went to uni and I was in my first year I was I was like basically paying my way through uni paying for my accommodation paying for my halls drinking money you know it was university after all by doing gigs by basically doing gigs wasn't there a moment where you almost blew in a big opportunity what well, wasn't massive opportunity but yeah no it was no it was it was a massive op i mean in, it was a gig in a social club it was a gig in a social club in portsmouth or gospel or southampton or somewhere i, I forget but um i was having a there was a teacher I was at uni and um, I was walking past these uh, these rooms that were basically on the campus that weren't didn't belong to uni but were on the campus and I could hear drums. I was like, it's a drum kit and it's not a band because it's just drums. 
So I sort of hung around the thing and it looked like it was a queue of people looking to go and get drum lessons. And I made friends with this fantastic bloke called Glenn Clark, who's a great educator, a great drum teacher in Winchester. And um, we just became friends. And we he would show me stuff and it wasn't like I was having lessons with him, but I sort of was. And I was like, I'm a student. I, I can't really afford to pay. And he was like, no, don't worry about it, man. Oh, by the way, have you seen this? And he'd show me something. He was great and really well connected and, and a lovely, lovely guy. And he was a great drummer. But moreover than the drums, he taught me the business. And he taught it specifically in one really important lesson. We'd been friends for about six months or so. And um, I get a call from him saying, hey, I can't do this gig on Friday night, Saturday night. Um, so I've recommended you. You just need to learn a few songs and you'll, you'll play with them. It'll be great. And I'll be like, wow, thanks, man. That's really cool. Great. What an opportunity. It's brilliant. Okay, cool. And 10 minutes later, sure enough, my phone goes and it's the, it's the band leader. And he rings me up and he goes, um, you come recommended by Glenn. And he says, you could do a good job. So the gig is this. It's this music. I can send you a set list. I can even send you a tape of the songs if you need it. And the gig is happening in Southampton on Friday night. Oh, Oh, I thought it was in Winchester. Oh, I'm really sorry. I haven't got a car. Um, I thought it'd be down the road. I thought I'd be able to do it, but I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I can't get to Southampton. I haven't got a car. And he was like, oh, um, all right. Well, okay. Well, thanks anyway. Cheers, mate. Puts the phone down. 10 seconds after that, I get a call. My, my phone lights up and it's Glenn. And have you ever seen one of those cartoons where the cartoon character's on the phone and a mouth comes through the mouthpiece going... Like that. Like that. I mean, Glenn was furious. Uh, and he was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? What's I, I've just given you that gig. And he said, he sprung me up and you saying you can't do it. I thought you were free on Saturday. And I was like, well, I am free, but I haven't got a car. And he goes, are you mad? What are you talking about? Like, do the gig. I'm like, well, I haven't got a car. He goes, make it happen. Have you, have you got any mates? I'm like, of course I've got mates. He goes, has any of them got a car? I was like, yeah. And he goes, give them the fee. If this is what it takes, if, if it's, I don't know, £100, give them 50 quid and say, go buy a load of beer. Can you give me a lift down to my gig? And that's exactly what I did. I got my friend Aaron to take me down in this Ford Fiesta. And he waited around and I, I split the money with him. And it was a gig in a working men's club or something, a social club, for barely any money. But what happened was the band leader also did a load of tribute acts around the country. And... He liked the way I played because I'd had an in and I did this gig with him. He's like, I've got, um, you know, it's not necessarily people's dream gig. It's not playing Wembley Stadium with Ed Sheeran, but it's work. And you're a blue college working musician. And I was 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. And all of a sudden he's like, I've got these Elvis Presley gigs. There's 10 this month and they're 250 quid a pop. So there I am at uni, nice. two and a half grand a month doing Elvis Presley gigs, Elvis Presley cover gigs. And then they had another tribute act and another tribute act. And they'd be like, can you do this gig? Can you do this gig? And a bass player on one of the other gigs got me my first gig with Natasha Bedingfield. Because, and, and this, is, this all came from a call that I said, oh, I'm really sorry, I can't do that. And Glenn was like, excuse my French, you, you make that happen. You make this happen. I don't care how you do it. If you get a taxi and you do the gig at a loss, you do the gig because he was looking out for me and he knew that I'd make a connection and I'd do a good enough job. This guy would recommend me and amuse me on other gigs. And on those other gigs that came out of this 
social gig in Gosport, I met connections, made connections that got me my first gig. And when that first gig happened, people were like, oh, this guy, you should use him. And that was, that's how, that's how it happens. But it was all, I almost screwed it all up because, and Glenn taught me the absolute lesson in business. That, that really important lesson, which was, you can be as good as you want, but the way you're playing it, you're going to be the best drummer in your bedroom. And nobody cares about that. You need to go out and you need to gig and you need to make these connections and you need to not turn this stuff down. He didn't say it in quite such a sympathetic way. He was, he was angry and rightly so. Thank God he was because I was like, God, I've got to make this happen. I've got to pull this out of the bag. Yeah. And as a result, one thing led to another, which led to another, which is why I'm sat here. You know, like sliding doors. You could have taken a different life path. And the lesson was to say yes and figure it out later. Exactly that. Exactly that. Make it happen. Make it happen. And people, when people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, you were in the right place at the right time. Bollocks to that. Find out what the right place is and when the right time is and make sure you're there and ready. There are a few tropes which just sound like bitterness to me. Oh, I was lucky. Or he's got this because of this. Or he's doing this because of that. And you'll rarely get that from people who are doing those things. You'll get them from people who want to do those things and are bitter about doing them. Or, yeah, but, you know, right place, right time. It's like, yeah, cool. Well, I was in the right place at the right time. But what if I hadn't have done 15 years of practice up until that point? I'd have been in the right place, right time. That would have been my shot. And I'd have screwed it up. You mentioned like, people that are bitter that aren't where they want to be and that, that kind of thing. One of the great drummers that cops a lot of flack who I know you're a massive fan of, Ringo Starr. What, yeah. what, what is it that makes him come under so much heat? And what is it that makes him so great? Well, I think the heat comes from the fact that, you know, the Beatles, as far as... If people name the Beatles, they'll, they'll say, you know, Paul and, Paul and John, um, because they were the songwriting duo, and they're staggeringly good, the best that did it probably um and you know people it's really people that don't know what a drummer contributes um it's it's ignorance it's not meanness you know ringo kind of talked like that it was sounded a bit it was thomas the tank engine sounded a little bit slow for want of a better expression when when you're singing if i had a blindfold on and now somebody was like whose voice is that i'd be like well that's andy's i know andy's voice right in guitar the sort of sound you have or the, or the choices you make or the solos you do, it's easy to identify a guitarist. It's easy to identify a piano player. Like the difference between Jules Holland, if Jules Holland was playing a bit of boogie-woogie or Elton was playing a bit of boogie-woogie versus somebody else, people have character in the way they play. And on drums, because they're not a melodic instrument, it's really difficult to develop and show character through drums and choices. But that said... I bet I could sit down on a drum kit and play a Beatles song and you'd be like, that sounds like Strawberry Fields or that sounds like Come Together or that sounds like Ticket to Ride. Mm. His choices were so unique and so different as a songwriting drummer, as a creative, what I was talking about before, like the emotional intelligence, making those choices that are going to excel the song, make, make the song as good as it can be. Most of those songs on, in the Beatles catalogue, you could just go, like a drum beat over, right? But instead, Ticket to Ride. 
Ringo goes with the guitar. He could have gone. But he didn't. He made a choice, which nobody else had played up until that point, that fitted so well with that music that it became part, it became inseparable. And just with the drums on their own, there are very few drummers. Stuart Copeland from The Police is another one that you'll play a little thing and it'll be like, that sounds like walking on the moon or whatever else. And to be able to come up with those parts that are so uniquely identifiable, that's come together. Those drum parts are so unique that even a non-drum will go, that sounds a bit like that Beatles song. Well, it is, and you don't speak drums. So it says so much about him and his creativity and his ideas. And then alongside that, just when he's playing a normal beat, it's so groovy. His pocket is so unique that it that in itself becomes a descriptor. I'll go and do sessions and people will go like, it's kind of got a Ringo vibe to this. And I'll know exactly what they mean. There'll be a bit of swing. It won't be... It'll be... It'll have a swing to it. A local... And to be, to be so iconic as to have a style, a, a whole lexicon in your name is, is bonkers. And he's brilliant. And he's funny. And he was Thomas the Tank Engine narrator. And he's cool. Really cool guy. I love him. I think he's great. Arian Alive. Talk us through what that is and, and what your involvement is in it. So the RNLI is the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. And um, they basically, it's a volunteer organization, really, that go out to sea and rescue people who are in trouble of drowning, who get, I mean, if you think of a problem on the water, a, a fishing boat breaks down out to sea, or the sea's really rough and their engine breaks down, or people on the beach get blown out to sea on an inflatable or they're swimming and they get caught in a rip and they get taken out to sea. That all happens around the coast. But because I live in London, the Thames is a a really, really busy stretch of water, a a very commercial river and really, really quite dangerous as well. Lots of bridges, very, very tidal, lots of commercial traffic, people, boats crashing, all anything you can imagine sort of going wrong on a river goes in. And unfortunately, people deciding to self-harm, jumping off bridges into the water, all that sort of stuff. Um, And the two busiest lifeboat stations of the RNLI are on the Thames. There's one in Chiswick and there's one at Waterloo Bridge called Tower Lifeboat Station. And I work at both of those and- um, They're the busiest in the UK. They're the busiest in the UK and, and, and in Europe. So last year, Tower got like 750 odd shouts, 750 999 calls. So on average, you know, a couple a day at least. I volunteer on those boats. Um, so I, you, you know, you do medic training, resus for drowning victims. Um, somebody might be working on their houseboat and might chop their thumb off or something. And, you know, you've got to go and get them out. Or a boat might be sinking and you have to pump it out and evacuate the crew. Um, or somebody might have self-harmed on a bridge and thrown themselves in. And then you have to pick them out and patch them up and get them to grown-up help, sort of a, a, a proper hospital. And it's so much fun. It's ridiculous. So you mentioned how many call-outs you're getting. Like how, how often is that? How often are you recovering people, pulling people out of the water? 
fairly often, a few times a week, either people that, you know, somebody could be on a party boat and they could be absolutely leathered and decide that it's too crowded to walk through the crowd. So they walk on the outside of the boat, but they're hammered and they fall in the water and they get spotted. So we'll go and pick them up before they drown, hopefully. Or people on a bridge will jump in or a boat will sink that's you know really terrible and it will go down fast and they won't have life jackets so you're recovering them out of the water so it happens it happens very often very very often um do people like can the people swim around like jump off the bridge in london and jump jump off bridges in london to just for fun or it, unfortunately or, or, or with it with an intent to cause self-harm unfortunately it's very very difficult at the moment for people and um I think before COVID happened, before the lockdown happened, there was one set of stats, and now there's a completely different set of stats. It's changed completely. It's, it's you know, in some cases more than double. Why is the Thames so dangerous? Like, why is it a dangerous river? It's extremely tight. So, so even when I was young, before I knew it was tidal, I used to think that the height of the river was based on whether it had been raining or not. But really, it's tidal. That's water coming in from the sea, um, from the Thames estuary. So we've got water coming down from the source of the Thames, um, coming all the way through the land, water coming off the land. So you've got that fluvial flow um, pushing water out to the sea. And then you've got water from the sea coming in. So when the tide rises, it rises by, on spring tides, when the tide's at its highest and at its lowest in tidal movements. There's seven metres of tidal difference between... But that's a lot of water between low tide and high tide. And so when that happens over four hours, you've got so it's something like 30 centimetres, so the length of a ruler in four minutes. So if, you're, if you've gone for a walk along a sandbank and you've fallen in some mud and you're trapped in the mud, that's raising the, the size of a ruler 30 centimetres every four minutes. And so every eight minutes, that's 60 centimetres. Every 12 minutes, that's a metre thick. And if you're stuck in mud, that's over your head in 12 minutes, potentially. So there's that. There's the fact that it's so tidal and the water runs so quickly on that. When that, that amount of water is filling up the river that quickly, you can get speeds of up to six knots. Now, an Olympic swimmer sing, swims at about four and a half knots, maybe up to six knots on a sprint. So an Olympic swimmer swimming against the tide at six knots is just about not moving. And that's an Olympic swimmer. And so you've got, you've got the fact that the tide will take you out. If you jump into a bridge, jump into the water on a bridge, when the water's going at six knots, if you imagine that the stands in the, in the water that are holding the bridge up, water will flow around those either side. But right on the other side of the bridge, there's a little vacuum where the water's flowing around, but around the bridge. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah, not being... Yeah. Yeah, so when the, so if, if the if the water's going past the bridge and it goes past one of those poles that are hanging up, uh, holding up the bridge, yeah, there's like a the water kind of goes around the pole and there's like a little bit of a gap almost. Exactly that. So that gap, that vacuum, that eddy, um, has to be filled up with water from somewhere, and that water is coming up. It's being sucked up from underneath the bridge into that void to to, to fill that void. And those eddies on those tides have meant that I've, I've been there. I've been sat under a bridge watching somebody about to jump. All right, boys, keep your eye on her. She's going in, she's going in, she's going in. And she will fall into that void and just won't come up. What? Just won't. 
won't surface. And you'll be like, okay, she went in there. Where the heck will it be? And we'll either get spit out further down, we'll get churned around and then spit out further down the river. Or when the tide changes, we'll, we'll come up. That, that happens. That's happened. You'll get caught in one of those eddies. And it's not about how strong a swimmer you are. It's like a weir. It's like thousands of times. If you think that a meter of water square, like get a meter stick, a square meter of water, that's one metric ton of water. And you think about how many tons are moving per second past that bridge. You, you, you'd be the best swimmer in the world. You won't fight that off. Also, when the tide is low and you're coming off a bridge, the, the river is really far shallower than you think. In some places, you've got a meter of water. So it's like, oh, just jump in and swim. But you'll jump in and you'll hit the bottom. If you some, hit the bottom... Some places on the, on the Thames, it's only a meter of water. Absolutely, yeah. Really? Absolutely. In Putney, in Putney, for example... There's, um, there's just a metre of water underneath some of the arches at low tide. In fact, at low tide, you can see the... It looks like there's a beach on the side of the river in some places yeah. on the Thames. The tide goes out that much. And if you... So if you jump into the, into the water and there's only a metre of water, you're going to end up... It's like jumping off a bridge and there not being water. It's just you'll, you'll hit the bottom. Mm. If you hit the bottom and, and get stuck in mud, you won't come up. If you hit the bottom and don't get stuck in mud, you'll really hurt yourself. If you... Get, you might get compression injuries. I mean, imagine dropping a tomato on the floor and tomato, oh, it's fine, tomato's fine. Well, inside that tomato's mush. It might not have split the skin, but you get injuries like that, like compression injuries, internal injuries. You get cold water shock. So the river runs cold. The river runs really cold. And it's not, it's briny. It's not salt water. The salt water's coming in from the estuary, but of course the fresh water's coming in, coming down from the land. So there's no buoyancy. You, you get buoyancy in salt water, but there's no buoyancy really in fresh water. And if you're wearing clothes, you enter the river in clothes, then you, you're fighting a losing battle. Like I say, the water's really cold. And if you're, it, so if you ever turned on the shower and it's been freezing, first thing you do is <gasps> sharp intake of breath. Now, if you hit the water and you're, you, you're underwater because you've just jumped off a bridge and you make that involuntary gasp, You've already lost because you're under the water having a lung full of water. So even if you surface, you, you're struggling and, you, you know, you've got water in your lungs and it's, it's very difficult. Another facet of cold water shock is that all the capillaries on your skin and, and the outside of your body shut down in order for all the blood to stay around your central organs and in the center of your core to keep your, keep your motor functions working, to keep your life support system, your brain, your heart, your, your, your kidney, your liver, all the rest of it working. So all the blood rushes to the center of your body to try to keep it warm. And that brings on heart attacks, strokes, aneurysms, and all the rest of it. So that's just from being in the water off a bridge. That's alongside having an injury on a boat or a boat sinking. Uh, and, and six knots, wearing a life jacket, you come off a boat and you're getting shot down the river at six and it's like being on a lazy river. Oh, this is quite fun. And then you'll come across a moored boat or a barge that, that is used to take waste or a commercial vehicle you know, a clipper, a party boat, something like that with a big, great big propeller that's going to churn you up or one of those moored up barges. And you go, you go into them and the, the six knot of water will force you underneath them. Oh. So it really is best that people stay out of the river. If there's any, if there's anything, some you know, advice. there's some advice. So on the non-time... often though? Does it happen often people just yeah. hit clippers? Is this like a daily, weekly kind of thing? Yeah, well, every, certainly a few times a week there'll be people in the water. 
um, that have entered the water either voluntarily or by accident, and and, and that's really a, a priority. You know, that's a scram. You scramble to them as quickly as you can. The person in the water is sort of the highest gradation of of um, of, uh, of emergency you can get. How quickly are you getting to people? It depends on so much stuff. It depends on where they are. From a, from what's called a cold launch. So if we're in our station and we get a nine 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 call, the bell goes. It's like a fire station. So you get straight into your gear. You run to the boat and you launch. That happens both at Chiswick and at Tower within ninety seconds. So. 90 seconds of getting the call, the boat's running, and we're on the way. We can get to anywhere in our patch within 15 minutes. And the patches are long. So Tower goes all the way from Barking Creek up to about Albert Bridge, sort of Battersea Way. And Chiswick takes over from sort of Albert Bridge, Battersea Way, all the way up to Richmond. So they're, they're long patches, and it all depends on so much. You might be afloat. We might be afloat training, and we'll get a coast guard, a call from the Coast Guard or hear something on... Um, the local network channel 14 which is basically river traffic channel saying a mayday or a a pan pan which is somebody's in distress and you'll be able to respond even quicker but hopefully it shouldn't be more than 90 seconds before we're underway how long have i got if i've if i've fallen in the water usually it's not all doom and gloom you could jump in off a bridge and then be a strong swimmer and come straight to the top and be and be fine it's everything on the way down it'd be quiet day nobody hits any traffic you could be bobbing around or you could grab hold of a mooring boy, but you can't do that forever, even as a strong swimmer. Uh, tragically, off of London Bridge last year, we had, we had a, a really tragic case of a woman intent on, on self-harming and jumping off a bridge. It was Tower, Tower Lifeboat. Jumped off a bridge and two males saw it, both of them really strong swimmers, jumped in uh, to help her. And one was able to help her and the other one drowned. So, so just, but really strong swimmers and voluntarily entered the river because they saw a woman drowning and drowned themselves. You know, really, really strong swimmer. And the woman survived. The woman that was despondent and had, and had entered the water was able to grab hold of something and was fine. And the guy who was a strong swimmer who went in to help her died. And it just happens. There's no real rhyme or reason to any of it. How do you guys get money? How do you guys operate? So, yeah, the RNLI is completely funded by donations. Um, it's a voluntary organisation. We kind of need your money to be able to carry on doing this because we're not government funded. How do people donate? They donate online through websites, through, um, I mean, that's really how it's done. We're, at events, there'll be card readers, there'll be people at football matches with buckets and um, all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, there are numerous ways to donate. So at Chiswick, for example, on our social medias, um, it's at Chiswick RNLI. There's there's a little link you can go to for Just Giving site, and you can you know donate through that way. What I'll do is in the description to this episode is I'll put a link in so people can just go on their phone if they're looking at it right now, if they're listening to this, just scroll down, hit the link, and that should take you straight to that Just Giving page that's for yeah. RNLI. Yeah. Well, good on you, mate, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a good chat. Absolute pleasure. It's always fun just talking about stuff. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 